From WAUB News, you're listening to The Outlet. I'm Michael Wyrick, handing over The Outlet to Taylor Burnett. I'm Taylor Burnett. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the southeastern Ohio region. This week on The Outlet, schools around the region have been updating their masking guidelines. You know, one of the challenges of continuing to have circulating virus is it gives more opportunity for the virus to to mutate. And a traveling exhibit provides an outlet for healing for those wounded by the Vietnam War. And that's what I want the most is for them to be remembered. So I put their names and faces up everywhere I can so that they are remembered. These stories and more right here on The Outlet. An early warning system indicated a potential rise in the number of COVID cases in the city of Athens. Nick Veland has more on what can happen. Wastewater samples drawn from the city's sewer system are monitored for coronavirus levels. The virus shows up in the waste of infected people days before they develop symptoms. Throughout June and July, the levels were flat and stable, but over the past couple of days, there had been a significant spike in the viral load, indicating that the case number could rise in the next couple of days. Athens Mayor Steve Patterson mentioned at Monday's city council meeting that he will have to keep an eye on the case numbers and could go to council next Monday with a mask mandate for government buildings. Athens Mayor Steve Patterson mentioned at this week's city council meeting that he will keep an eye on the case numbers and could go to council next Monday with a mask mandate for government buildings. Last month, Illinois became the first state to mandate Asian American history in their K-12 curriculum. Dylan Tyson reports that an elected Ohio University alumna is making similar waves in the Ohio Senate. It's a provision Tina Maharath says is long overdue. We've been in this country for years, hundreds of years, and our history has never really been talked about. Last week, the Ohio senator introduced the TEACH Act, which stands for Teaching Equitable Asian American Community History, for K-12 schools. To discuss the contributions that Asian American Pacific Islanders bring to our state, whether that be politically, economically, or even it culturally. Maharath was the first Asian American woman elected to the Ohio legislature. She's also the first senator to introduce such legislation to the General Assembly. I am optimistic that we will receive bipartisan support. Uh, I am requesting for co-sponsor requests from both sides of the aisle. In its current state, the bill gives lots of flexibility to local administration. It's all local control, so each district and each school shall determine that a minimum amount of instructional time. It's not something we're going to enforce heavily, but we are trying to enforce that the topic gets touched on in general. One of Maharath's Asian Studies professors, Patia Paladroy Shane, believes this is an opportunity to build cultural appreciation for Asian Americans. I would like them to come to my class with a sense of appreciation that uh, they're going to learn something new, something that will make them become more well-rounded. And that doesn't just apply to American students, but also students of Asian descent. Why I wanted to be proficient in Thai if I don't actually appreciate my own culture, my own history, right? And, and how my, I, I see myself. She says that appreciation is more important now than ever before. Especially um, during the pandemic that Asian American has been the target groups for racial um, attack and also uh, racial injustice and even hate crimes. The bill will receive its first committee hearing after the Ohio legislature returns to session September 7th. Maharath hopes the legislation will be ready for the 2022 school year. Dylan Tyson reporting for The Outlet. 
Schools around the state have been updating their protocols for the upcoming year as COVID cases are on the rise again. Will Price has more on the changes. Ohio University is bringing back its mask mandate for anyone indoors, regardless of vaccination status. The university lifted the mandate in June based on guidance from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. However, the Delta variant has spread across the country. Dr. Jillian Ice, who oversees the university's COVID response, said last month virus mutations like the Delta variant could cause problems for even vaccinated individuals. You know, one of the challenges of continuing to have circulating virus is it gives more opportunity for the virus to, to mutate and then for uh, a mutation, if it's successful, to um, not only infect the unvaccinated, but perhaps break through the those who are vaccinated. In-person classes are scheduled to return, but with masking and social distancing requirements. Residential students will be required to get tested for COVID upon arrival, whether they are vaccinated or not. University Housing projects over 6,000 students will be back in resident halls. ICE says they need to manage outbreaks as students return. Really, the goal is to make sure that the cases stay to the point where we can we can manage them and prevent outbreaks from, you know, small outbreaks from becoming large outbreaks. Masks are recommended, but not mandated, outdoors. OU isn't the only college to change course. The University of Cincinnati, Miami University, and Ohio State University will be requiring masks when classes start. For the outlet, I'm Will Price. The traveling exhibit brought a national memorial to the edge of Ohio University's campus in Athens. The Wall That Heals is a replica of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Athens residents and others from across the region gathered last week to mourn loved ones, or even just to pay their respects to strangers. Maya Lin's famous monument returned to her hometown once again, bringing a chance for closure, healing, and remembering the 58,000 men and women who were killed during the Vietnam War. The wall was escorted into town with a motorcade of over 150 motorcycle riders, first responders, and others as it's made its way from Nelsonville to the Plains, then up Court Street. It remained for the entire weekend. This version of the memorial is supported by only two full-time staff members, said Dean Murphy, a site manager for the wall that heals. It takes about 40 volunteers or better to install the wall. We cannot do it by ourselves. If it was not for them, we could not do it. Uh, a number of them return, bringing their families, and, and we'll walk along the wall. There's a couple of them walking along, along the wall right now that actually helped set this up. And now they actually get a little time to reflect on it. Along with the volunteers, the Ohio University wrestling team also turned out last Wednesday evening to put up the wall. The names on the wall are sorted by the date they were killed and are in alphabetical order for each day. For many visiting, they may be scanning for a specific name, while others know right where to go. In addition to the wall, the exhibit features a traveling museum featuring a number of items left at the memorial in D.C., alongside information about people from each area the museum travels to, changing depending on place. On the wall, there are 31 names listed of people killed in action from Athens County. Robert Van Nest is one of the many people from Athens County directly affected by the Vietnam War. His stepbrother Frank Miller Jr. was killed in action. Van Nest was 15, and Miller was deployed at only 18. Things didn't go well, and he lasted just over a month. Van Ness was never really worried about Frank when he left home, because he was a good shot, but says his death left a lifelong impact on him. 
He made it a goal to continue honoring the memory of people from Athens County who lost their lives. And that's what I want the most is for them to be remembered. So I put their names and faces up everywhere I can so that they are remembered. As he browsed the memorial, Van Ness clutched a white binder filled with handwritten notes and photos about the deceased from Athens County, which he collects in any way he can. On his Facebook page, he posts about each of the people on their birthdays and on the day they were killed in action. He helped assemble the wall last Wednesday and placed the panel with his stepbrother's name on it. When he wasn't volunteering, he was still at the wall, taking rubbings of his stepbrother's name along with the others from Athens County who were killed. People come to the wall looking for all sorts of things, from commemorating all of the people who served to seeing the name of a relative they never got the chance to mourn. Some veterans come with a chair and some beers, said Amy Sprouts, the marketing manager at the Athens County Convention and Visitors Bureau. They often leave a cold one or two for the memorial to have a beer with friends they lost in combat. For volunteers like Steve Chickie, the wall is a reminder of the nation's past and treating people with compassion. It reminds me of what took place. It was a, you know, it's a time nobody liked. And it's to remind people they were, you know, not to hate the warrior. You can hate the war, but don't hate the warrior. The exhibit will continue traveling around the country. Next on the outlet, the city of Athens implements diversity training, and an Athens group is combining art and nature. Throughout history, there have been many different types of religions, with a variety of beliefs. In the second part of reporter Benjamin Byers' interview with Brian Collins, an associate professor with the Classics and Religious Department at Ohio University, Collins explains pluralism and the effects that it had on the evolution of religion itself. Oftentimes, people think of religion as something stagnant and unchanging, but that could not be farther from the truth. As societies continue to change and evolve, so too do their beliefs about the world around them. As societies came together, whether through times of mass exodus or the conquering of land by a foreign power, religion changed and evolved each time people moved from one area to another. Collins says this is where pluralism comes into the picture. Part of it is... Uh, pluralism is that when people live in smaller groups and more uh, in societies that are united by language and tribal affiliation, uh, then then religion is hard to separate out from the rest of life. But then when they mix with other groups who have noticeably different practices, noticeably different stories, and noticeably different names for certain powers or, or deities, then uh, there's a comparison that goes on there. And eventually, right, the more that religions are codified in writing, uh, the more evidence it is that they're, that they're different from each other. And when they're different from each other, then you and I have different religions, but we have the same uh, social connections. We live in the same place. Uh, we have the same weather. We have the same language. We have the same ruler above us. And so eventually over time, uh, you get a, 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 a difference between a religious part of your identity and your identity as a whole. So you can be an American and you can be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Scientologist or a Buddhist because of the sort of of the idea that that religion is something that can be different about people. And so the more diverse a society is, uh, the more 
the more you're going to, the more likely it is that they'll have an idea of something like religion because of, of the comparison that they naturally do with each other. Pluralism is the condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority, etc. coexist. Collins says ancient peoples would not have considered what they believed as a religion, rather more as an identity. They identified themselves with other members in their society with these specific beliefs, whether that be through rules and laws or oral traditions passed down from one generation to the next. Identities changed as people intermingled with each other. In some senses, religion is just like when you're looking, you're thinking about grave goods, for instance, unless they're, they're not considering what they do religion, it's just a way of being in the world, like uh, gathering plants and um, wrapping up in animal skins and hunting and other things. Uh, so it's not until really the really recent past that people have recognized something called religion uh, in the world but then they applied it to things that happened long before. So there's a sort of a way of life that then you go back uh, looking from from the present into the past and separate out certain aspects of it and call them religion, but really they weren't separable uh, from the way of life of, of people at that time, like in Egypt or Mesopotamia. I mean, there, there's no place where religion ends and culture begins there. Different religions seem to borrow certain stories from other religions when pluralism is present. Zoroastrianism, which is one of the oldest practiced religions, affected many religions that would come later. As the Persian Empire, where Zoroastrianism originated, expanded and conquered many different lands. Well, I think it's more common that it would evolve at contact through contact with other religions. I mean, I think that probably happens pretty often. So Zoroastrianism, which you mentioned, was at one time a pretty big world religion. Now there's very few Zoroastrians left. Most of them are in Mumbai and India, uh, called people called Parsis. But at one time, it was the official religion of, of the Achaemenid Empire, uh, which is also the empire that spread the Aramaic language all over uh Asia and and the Middle East, which of course was the language of Jesus, uh, because the Achaemenids conquered. Uh, and although they were Persian speakers for some reason, their their language that was spoken in their empire was uh, was Aramaic, and their religion was Zoroastrianism. And so Zoroastrianism has left an impact on Buddhism, on uh, on religions to its east, Buddhism and Hinduism, and to its west, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Uh, yeah, so you see Zoroastrianism as influence still today, as you say, because of their, um, because of the conquest of those places, and because in the borderlands people were interacting with each other. So a lot of times religions borrow ideas from one another, and or stories from one another. Collins says Buddhism played a role, according to the evidence, that the nativity story is absent from earlier gospels. There's every reason to believe that the story of the birth of Jesus in the manger uh, is not part of the original Gospels. Uh, the Gospels really seem to start when he's 30 years old, not much before that. There were a lot of infancy Gospels that circulated around uh, in the early Christian era and, and then through the Middle Ages, but they were apocryphal. They were written much later. Uh, so where this idea came from, that he was a prophesied king uh, who wise men sought out, wise men, by the way, who were identified in the Bible as Zoroastrian priests. Uh, so the, the Magi. 
Well, it seems to come from the story of the Buddha, uh, which which was, of course, in eastern India, and but made its way all the way into the Middle East through the trade routes and became picked up as a version of of the early life of Jesus, which we know nothing about from the Gospels. Was again sorry when he was thirty. All that to say that they borrow really important ideas from one another, like karma and rebirth and asceticism, also stories, languages, practices, uh, structures like monasticism, uh, institutions, and that is a way that religions change. Not only can religions be affected externally, but also from within. Ideals change and evolve within the people who practice a religion. They can also change without in contact with other religions because the ideas within them naturally sort of develop into other ideas. So even religions that may be somewhat isolated uh, can have a lot of development over time because those ideas are sort of carried to their logical conclusions and then, and then beyond. Uh, so it can happen internally, as you say, and externally. For The Outlet, I'm Benjamin Byers. The Athens City Council rushed through the approval of new mandatory training for city employees. Nick Veland reports on how this training will work. The race, equity, and leadership or real training will be required for all city employees. The training includes four different modules. The first two will be required for all city employees. The mayor's direct staff and department heads will also have to complete a third module. The fourth module will be a train the trainer, and the mayor hopes that this will allow the program to become full circle. The total cost for the program will be just under $92,000 and will come from the city's general fund. Concerns have been raised about how effective the training will be and whether the money could be better spent on other approaches to addressing systemic racism. Athens Mayor Steve Patterson said that this education is necessary and valuable. When, we're, when you're talking about the cost unto itself, you know, how do you put a price tag on any training that has to do with understanding systemic racism and the discrimination that has occurred for centuries um, upon um, our BIPOC populations? The timetable for this is long, and the mayor is hopeful to get all employees trained in less than a year. For The Outlet, I'm Nick Veland. The timetable for this is long, and the mayor is hopeful to get all employees trained in less than a year. Ohio collegiate athletes have begun entering contracts to sell their name, image, and likeness. However, there are questions about the details of those deals. Statehouse correspondent Joe Engel reports. Luke Fedlin, a sports attorney in Columbus, believes college athletes that enter deals need to know repercussions that come with those benefits because their name, image, and likeness is uncharted territory. It's new to college athletic departments, it's new to parents, it's definitely new to the student athletes, it's new to the coaches, so there has to be some education to help prepare them so that student athletes end up in a better spot when they leave school, since we know 98% of them are not going pro, that they're in a better spot when they leave school than when they started. At a recent Columbus Metropolitan Club forum, Fedlum said without more specific information about NIL deals, students could end up with tax problems or other unintended consequences. Joe Ingalls at the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau. A group in Athens is working to get the message out about conservation by partnering with a local artist. 
The Athens Conservancy works to purchase land with high public value, says Chris Fall, president of the Conservancy Board. It preserves private property with environmental value, but also preserves land for public use, whether to hike, bike, or simply enjoy. Um, either it's an important homestead, or maybe it's a place that has incredibly significant wildflower populations. And all of them also have um, important biological features, you know, um, whether that's a water system or a system that has very few invasives or good wildflowers or huge massive trees. The Conservancy is working to expand its efforts, both in getting land and getting out to the community to let people know it's there. One way is through art, says Victoria Elwood, the development coordinator from the Conservancy. So by combining something that's, that spotlights the nature and our land and our Conservancy's preserves, also with um, beautiful artwork done by a local artist, we thought that was like a win-win and a great way to um, celebrate both the, the nature and the art around here. The group is sponsoring Savannah Freeman, a local artist who owns Moonville Print Shop, to create a piece representing nature in the Appalachian, Ohio region. Savannah is no stranger to making art inspired by the beauty of the region. Her block prints, which she carves by hand and stamps on the paper, cloth, and more, are inspired by nature in the region. I think that it really mostly inspires me because it's what makes me feel good. I spend a lot of time outside hiking and um, at Sells Park and at Strad's Run. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and we spend a lot of time outside and that way I can kind of be doing research for my work and also hanging out with my kid. Freeman's work encompasses the ideas the Athens Conservancy was founded upon, protecting the land and appreciating and sharing the beauty the region holds. Her piece for the Athens Conservancy will highlight the beauty of Appalachian, Ohio. While the Conservancy will be working with money from the Clean Ohio Fund to make sure nature near Athens is accessible as possible. Those who are interested in visiting the parks owned by the Conservancy can visit AthensConservancy.org. In Athens, I'm Taylor Burnett for The Outlet. Those interested in visiting the parks owned by the Conservancy can visit AthensConservancy.org. That's all we have for you this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is produced each week by me, Taylor Burnett. We're edited by Aaron Payne and David Forster. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud or Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts. You can find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at outlet underscore woub and Instagram at woub underscore outlet. We'll be back next week with more stories from the southeastern Ohio region. 